our scripture reading this week uh, comes from Hebrews uh, chapter 10, starting at verse 19 through to verse uh, 25. And it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thank you so much, Graham, and thanks, Stacy, for those words of tribute and of uh, encouragement to our grads. There are actually gifts in these bags. We will figure out a way to get these to the grads, uh, but I do just want to add my personal word of congratulations to each one of the grads who are part of our church family, and though I haven't had a chance to meet you in person, I know that on behalf of the church family, I can extend congratulations to each one of you. Well, it's time for the Pastors Club picture. Here's the instructions this week. Draw a picture of something that you really hope for. I'm going to let you say what it is and what it might be. I'm guessing at least one person's going to draw a puppy. Probably. Maybe somebody wants a pony. I'm really hoping. I, I, I'm not going to plant any more ideas. You draw the picture. What is one thing that you are really, really hoping for? And parents, you can get those pictures into me. Uh, we're just about to the point where we're going to be able to have that ice cream celebration with the Pastors Club. So uh, I'm hoping that the numbers continue to go up of people that can gather together and soon we'll be able to have that, that party together with the Pastors Club. But we'll just keep functioning the way we are for now. And so what is one thing that you really hope for? Now, if I say the phrase something is like a stuck record... How many people does that actually mean something to? And I'm actually going to look around the building and see, look at that. Almost everybody that's in the room right now. And there's some young people and some old people. For the sake of those that aren't sure what that means, records, they're the big black things that you put on a record player and it turns round and round. You put the needle on and it plays music and you hear that familiar crackle, crackle, crackle sound and then the music starts playing. But there's a problem with records. See, I, I grew up in the era when that's how you listened to music. It was either the record or the cassette tape. And if you're saying, what's a cassette tape? Well, that's the thing that came after the 8-track. And if you're saying, what's the 8-track? Well, don't worry about it. We're focusing on the record right now. But if you got a scratch in just the right place in a record, here's what would happen. You'd be listening along, the record would be spinning, and you'd be listening to your music, and all of a sudden you'd start hearing the same thing over and over and over and over 
and over. Because where the scratch was, the needle kept jumping back, one groove on the record. And you just kept hearing the same thing until finally you walked over. And depending on who you were and how much you cared about the record and the equipment, you either gently moved it over or you just banged the side of the record player. And then it would start keep on playing. Well, welcome to the book of Job, chapters 15, or sorry, 16, 17, and 18. A section of scripture that to me is starting to feel like a stuck record. If you've been reading through the book of Job, which I hope you have been doing, we've been walking through this conversation that Job has between himself and his friends. But we are seeing the same thing being brought up over and over and over again. Once again, Two chapters, chapter 16 and chapter 17, Job blasts his friends. Here's how he starts out this week. I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? I hope that's not your thought about the sermon this morning. This is Job we're reading, remember? This is scripture, okay? Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if I were in your place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. Sound familiar? Last week he called them useless physicians. This week he just blasts them once again as miserable comforters. We also see Job blaming God once again. And this time it's even more pointed than last week. He makes statements like, Surely God, you have worn me out. God assails me and tears me in his anger. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. In fact, there are 14 statements in these two chapters that Job directs at God and says, you have done this to me. And there's only five statements that he directs at man. Sound familiar? That's what we talked about last week. Also, Job continues to claim to be blameless. Job chapter 16, verse 15 to 17, we see this. And once again, Job's friends have kind of the same message. This time it's Bildad who speaks, and once again he's saying, Job, the problem is you've sinned and done something wrong because God is a God of judgment and punishment, and because you are suffering, you must have done something wrong. And so Bildad takes all of chapter 18 to describe what life is like for wicked people. Now, I don't know about you, but when I find I'm reading through Scripture and I start to hear the same thing over and over and over, it's kind of easy to start to check out, to go, I- I've already heard this. D- didn't I already read this? I've mentioned before I'm reading through the Bible chronologically. It's interesting how many times the same story is actually told in Scripture. So when you read it chronologically, you know, you're reading in Kings and then you're in Chronicles and it's like, didn't I just read this? Oh, yeah, it's exactly the same story told twice. Why does Scripture have that so often? Why does God include it in Scripture? It's easy to look at a passage like we're looking at now and to say, I've already read this, we've already heard the sermon, done this, let's move on to something else. But I want to just remind us of a, of a verse in Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and it is inspired by God It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. What part of Scripture is useful? What part of Scripture is inspired by God? 
Is it just the exciting parts of the story? Is it just the parts that give us really good information? Or does it include those lists of names that we read in the Old Testament that go on and on and on? Is it the book of Job that week after week we hear exactly the same story? All Scripture is inspired by God. And what's it useful for? You know that word that we translate to be teaching? A literal translation from the Greek of that word is actually doctrine. It doesn't mean imparting truth. It actually means that all Scripture is truth. We're also told it's useful for rebuking. Rebuking, another word you could use, is proving. It's talking to those that may not believe that it's truth and convincing them. And Scripture is something that's useful in doing that. You know, some people are incredibly gifted in this area. A number of weeks ago, the Church Universal lost an incredible gift, a fellow by the name of Ravi Zacharias who passed away. Brilliant, brilliant man who spent the latter part of his life presenting and teaching and rebuking, correcting, like actually trying to prove to people that the truths of Scripture are in fact true. Brilliant man who would use science and literature and history and archaeology and culture, and he'd bring it all together But Scripture is useful and can be used for proving to people that it is true. The other word that's used is correcting. Rebuking and correcting correcting in the English language kind of sound similar, don't they? But rebuking is proving to somebody that it is true. Correcting is actually drawing somebody back to the truth. Someone who has strayed away from their faith, perhaps. We can use Scripture to help to bring them back. And finally, training. This is a pretty straightforward word. Think of what you do with a child. You train up a child. You raise them up in the values that you want to instill in them. In church, we call it discipleship. It's one of the reasons why I'm excited that in this church family, we have all ages, and normally in the last few weeks, we would have had ministry wrap-ups for ministries of all ages because we see it as being important to train up or to teach individuals, to be a part of discipling them, of helping people to grow in their relationship with Christ, whether the youngest child or the only oldest senior, whether you've walked with the Lord for a day or whether you've walked for many, many years with Him. All Scripture is inspired by God. And so even this boring part of Scripture that we keep reading the same thing over and over and over, there's a reason why God's included it. Now, this sermon series that we're doing is an overview. We're kind of pulling out the nuggets of truth from each chapter. But if we were to actually do an in-depth exegetical study, verse by verse, word by word, I suspect we would be amazed at what we would learn through these repetitive passages. But for today, I want to pull out the nugget that jumps out to me from this conversation. It's two statements that Job makes. Job chapter 17, verse 1. My spirit is broken. And chapter 17, verse 15. Where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? In this chapter we get a glimpse of where Job's state of mind is at and where his focus on God is at. 
He's at the end of his rope. He's given up. My spirit is broken. He, has, he sees no hope in this situation. It's like it has gone too far. He had, remember, he has lost absolutely everything. And even the friends that came to comfort him, he's fed up with their comfort because they're not even listening to him. And as I mentioned last week, it's just simply become an argument. He's lost everything. He's given up hope. And this morning, the nugget of truth that I want us to focus on in this longer passage is not one that Job declares, but it's one that we can claim when we find ourselves in a situation similar to Job. It's one that Job could have focused on if he chose to. To do so, I want to springboard from the book of Job to the passage in Hebrews that Graham just read for us. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Because in this text, we see a verse that to me is the most important verse in the whole text that was written, that was read. Verse 23, chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. In this, these few verses that were read, that's the instruction. Hold on to hope. But have you ever found yourself in a situation where you didn't even know what you could hope in? You know, I'm curious to see what the kids are drawing right now. I'd be curious to see what the adults would be drawing right now if all the adults were drawing a picture of what I put my hope in, something that I hope for. The reality is we live in a society where people put their hope in all kinds of things. Hope in a better job or maybe just simply having a job, of having more finances, of getting a new car, of getting a vacation, of having a good family get together. We have all kinds of things that we put our hope in, but what happens when it's taken away? That's what happened to Job. Did he have things he could put his hope in? He was described in chapter 1, as, or maybe it was chapter 2, somewhere in that story in the first two chapters anyways, he's described as being the most powerful or influential man in the East at that time. He was wealthy. He was influential. He was powerful. He had friends. He had family. He had palaces. You name it. He had it. All the things that he could put his hope in. And it was all taken away from him. What do we all do? when the things that we tend to put our hope in are taken away from us. Perhaps you're watching this live stream this morning and you find yourself in a situation where you are expressing similar sentiments to Job. My spirit is broken. Where is their hope? In this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, the first few verses describe for us the true source of hope. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened us through the curtains that is his blood, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart. Now, if you're not familiar with church language, if you haven't grown up attending the church, you might have just heard me read that and your eyes may have just rolled back and you went, I have no idea what he just said. 
Those verses describe for us what Jesus Christ has done for us. The reality is we have direct access to God because of Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We talk often about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross And the reality that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins. But not only did he pay the price for our sins, in doing so, he made it possible for us to have direct access with God the Father. The God who created all things, who knows all things, can do all things. The one and only supreme being, the one who was and is and is to come and never will change. We have direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And that's what these verses are talking about. It talks about the sacrifice that Jesus made shedding his blood so that our sins can be forgiven and so that we can live in relationship with God and we can enter his presence. You know, this passage also tells us how we can experience hope. It tells us how we should respond to what Jesus has done for us. It tells us two thing, three things, actually. First of all, in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Verse 23 tells us, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And verse 24 and 25 tell us to consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The sacrifice Jesus has made for us gives us direct access to the Father, the ultimate source of hope. But the reality is, we must choose, first of all, to draw near to Him. We have to choose to hold on to the hope that we have as a result of being able to uh, be in direct communication with God. But then the third thing is, we need to consider how we and others can grow through the experience that we find ourselves in, where we are struggling to experience hope, and we need to hold on to this verse and claim it in our own lives and apply it in our own lives. You know, there are some over the last few months who have taken a look at these last few verses and have said, This just shows that the government is absolutely wrong. They can't forbid us to come to church because Scripture says that we need to go to church. Well, it doesn't actually say how we are to meet together. You know, one of the amazing things that I see about the church worldwide is how in the last few months that God has blessed the church with incredible creativity in ways that we can still meet together even though we may not be together. We have been reinforced in the reality that the church building is not really the church. It's the people. And so we can gather together in smaller groups. We can gather together online. We can meet together. But what's the whole purpose of this? This is not a text where we get this as a command as, thou shalt go to church every single Sunday. No, what it's saying is, consider how you can learn and grow 
together in whatever it is that you are facing. It's interesting, I find it interesting, as I I think about that text in 1 Timothy that says that all Scripture is inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. All four of those aspects are in this text. We've got a declaration of truth. God is our hope. We've got an, an opportunity to prove to others through this text that this is true because of the work Jesus has done. There also is the invitation to draw those who perhaps have lost sight of that hope back to God. And we can use this text as an opportunity to grow in our relationship. This text not only shows us the source of our hope and how we can experience hope, but it also describes the reality. Did you happen to notice the words that describe the actions we are to take? Brothers and sisters, since we think we might be able to enter the most holy place, since we might have a chance to get into the most holy place, no, that's not what it says. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. It talks about holding on to the hope. Hold on to it just in case it's there. Hold on, maybe it's there. No, hold unswervingly to the hope. This is a promise that we have. We have been given this promise and can live in this reality that no matter what comes in the world, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, God is our source of hope. But what is hope? Just last night, we were watching a movie as a family, and uh, I was watching a movie, it's kind of a documentary about uh, Michelle Obama and about her book release tour and tells a bit of her background. And in the very last scene of the movie, it shows her on a platform with Stephen Colbert It happened to be the last event that she had in her book release tour. And he was asking her questions, and she's responding, sitting in front of this huge crowd of thousands of people. And Stephen made this statement. He said, one thing I miss about Barack being in office is that he would speak to hope when he gathered in an auditorium. And then he gave a definition of hope. Hope is the possibility of change. Hope is the possibility of change. And you know, from the world's perspective, that is a valid definition of hope. But what we're talking about today is what happens in a situation like Job's life where the change that we are seeing, there's a possibility of, even that possibility seems to gone. What happens when we are holding on to hope for healing to happen, and it doesn't happen in the way that we thought it would? What happens when we're holding out hope for reconciliation, and it doesn't happen in the way that we think it should happen? What happens when we hold out hope for financial things to change, or for other situations to change, and they don't? The reality is, we need 
As I was preparing for this message, I came across a story where Rabbi Hugo Grin shared his experiences having been a child in Auschwitz. And he was with his family in Auschwitz. And during that time, every little bit of food that came into the prisoners was divided up and everyone got a little share so that everybody got some calories into them until it came time to celebrate Hanukkah. And all of a sudden, his father took a lump of margarine, put it in the lamps that the Jews would light as they celebrated Hanukkah, and used it as the fuel to light the lanterns. And he remembers his father being asked, why are you doing that? That could give calories to many people. Just that little bit of margin would keep us going. And his father's response was this. We know that it's possible to live for three weeks without food, but without hope, it is impossible to live properly for three minutes. It is impossible to live properly without hope for three minutes minutes. What is your source of hope? You know, as I share this message, this is not just a theoretical message that I get from Scripture and a lesson that can be learned. This is a deeply personal one for me because I have walked in times where it seemed there was no hope. There was no possibility of change. I remember sitting in the front row of a church service, bawling my eyes out, as family and friends walked past in order to allow myself and my immediate family a few moments alone in front of the casket of our daughter. I remember laying in a hospital bed on an Easter Sunday morning, looking at the results of my blood work from that day and bursting into tears at the realization that my white blood count had crawled up such a little bit, I hadn't even made it to five yet, and crying and saying, is this ever going to change? I remember sitting in a congregational meeting, and once again, tears flowing down my face as I heard the results to a vote, which was a decision that the church made that they would no longer be having a youth pastor, and I knew that meant I was being laid off. You know, those are some very real experiences for me. Times when tears flowed, when there were disappointments, the expectations that I had and even the expectations that I placed on God did not come to pass in the way that I thought that they would be. But I can honestly say that God was my source of hope. What is your source of hope this morning? I am so thrilled to see the way that throughout Scripture we have this message of hope declared over and over and over again. And this morning, as we notice how Job lost his hope, it can be a reminder for us of the truth that is in Scripture. You know, there's 180 verses in the NIV that talk about hope. There's 34 verses that specifically use the phrase, my hope. But you know, we sing songs all the time that declare this too. As I was preparing this, this message, the song that kept going through my head was the hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. 
And then a little while later, another song would pop into mind. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. And then an even newer song comes to mind. The title is Living Hope. That talks about Jesus Christ being our living hope. I was curious, to, to, I was wondering, how many songs do we sing in church that talk about my hope? How many times do we declare this message and don't even realize it? Well, our church has a membership in CCLI. It's an organization that churches all around the world are a part of. It's a way that we are able to ensure that royalties are given to the artists whose music that we use. But one of the benefits of that is we're able to have access to a database of, church, of songs that are used in churches around the world. All different types of churches and styles of worship. You name it, it's in this list. From the oldest hymn to the newest chorus, it's in there. In fact, there's over 450,000 songs in that database. So I thought, I'm just going to search and see how many talk about my hope. Take a guess how many. Think, think of a number. And whatever number you've got in your mind, probably add at least one more zero, if not two, maybe even three. If you guessed 100, you're way too low. If you guessed 1,000, you're still too low. If you guessed 10,000, you're still too low. Over 12,000 songs that are sung in churches around the world that declare this and sing about the reality that my hope is in God. Now, in fairness to the database and the, you know, the research, I thought, okay, I mean, that's a lot of songs, 450,000 songs. I bet you I could do the same search for any other phrase that we talk about God and get a similar number. So I thought, oh, my strength. We sing about God being my strength. There's only 7,000. Oh, my comfort. We sing lots about God being comfort. Only 3,000. In fact, the only phrase that I entered as I was doing this search that ended up with more was the moment we started talking about God's love. We declare this truth in the songs that we sing, in the scriptures that we read. This is useful scripture because it is truth. It also is something that we can use to prove to others that it is true because we can talk about our experiences and the testimonies we have in scripture. It also is a word of encouragement that we can use to draw others back to focusing on God as a source of hope. And my hope today is that it's a message that each one of us grow as together we become closer to Jesus. The question that I have for us this morning is what is your source of hope? If it is anything other than Jesus Christ, I'm sorry to say you're probably going to be let down. But if Jesus Christ is your hope and you are focusing on our Heavenly Father and you are listening to His Spirit and allowing Him to minister to you, it matters not what circumstances you find yourselves in. Your hope will be based on the one thing that is unchanging. Earlier this week, I sent out a, a, my weekly greeting, and I mentioned, uh, I talked about dis disappointments. And I have a few people that I've asked to be prayer partners for me, people that have spoken into my, lives in, in, into my life in many different ways over the years. And so I've started sharing my weekly greetings with them, just to give them a glimpse, a glimpse of what's going on in my heart and what's going on in the life of the church kind of thing. One of my prayer partners replied with this statement after I talked about disappointments and how our hope needs to be focused on God. He made this statement. All disappointments 
are swallowed up in the sufficiency of Christ. I'd like to ask the worship team to come to the front and prepare themselves to lead us in one more song. And my hope is that it is a song of testimony for us. That as we look back on the situations where we have struggled to experience hope, that we are able to say, thank you for those scars. Because it's because of those scars I know that you gave me hope. And I can hold on to you for hope at this time.